Sometimes there's one phone call that changes the trajectory of your life. When I was 19 years old, my friend Cliff called me one day. And he said to me, I really want to go on a date with this girl named Delane. But she only wants to go just kind of an introductory type of way if it's a double date. And so I'm wondering if you would double date with me. And it just so happens that Cliff said to me, he goes, my cousin Debbie is coming to school this year, and I think she would go with you to this concert um, that I want to invite Delane to if you'd be willing to go with her. And so I said, sure, I'll come along, I'll do you this favor and go along, and who knows what'll happen with Debbie. And so we go to the concert, and Cliff and Delane crashed and burned immediately. But Debbie and I had really good conversation, which led to more dates and more good conversation, which eventually led to marriage, and 37 years later, here we are, and it all started with a phone call. Yeah. That is something to applaud. Uh, that's good. I imagine all of us could tell stories of a phone call that's changed our life. And sometimes it's good news like that. Sometimes it's a phone call that ends up with an invitation to a concert and a blind date, or maybe to a job offer that you've been hoping to get, or some kind of expression of love, or the news that uh, your grandchild was just born, or you've just won this contest or something like that. But often those kinds of phone calls change our life in terms of being a crisis. And so the voice on the other end of the line says, there's been an accident, or someone you know and love has died, or there's a police officer on the other end of the line, and they say to you, your child has done something, and you need to come down to the police station. Sometimes you hear or suspect you've, something you've been suspecting all along. You hear that someone you love is addicted, and they're finally admitting it. Or you hear about that divorce that's about to happen. Or you get a phone call or a text from someone that you care deeply for and you wanted a future with, and they want to break up with you. Can I just pause for a second and say, can we just make a promise as a church that we would never, ever, ever break with, up with someone via text? That's just a brutal thing to do. Brutal. I can think of a few phone calls I've had in my life where I will remember to the day I die where I was when I got that phone call and when it happened. And one day that phone call will come and it will rock your world. And when that phone call comes, you're going to find yourself living in one of two conditions. 
The phone call comes, and either A, you are going to be living mostly in isolation in terms of relationship. You will be largely disconnected from other people. And emotionally and relationally and spiritually, at that moment, you're not going to be sure who you could reach out to or who you could be real with, because largely you are relationally isolated. Or secondly, you're going to find yourself living in community. And there's going to be a person or persons who know you, who love you, because you've eaten together with them, you've laughed together, you've cried together maybe, you've played together, you've prayed together, you've opened God's word up together and said, what does this really mean in my life and how can my life be shaped by this? You've celebrated things in life together, you've mourned losses together, and you've done life together. And when that phone call comes, you will be able to be in contact with those people and they will hold you up and they will strengthen you and support you and help you keep it together as if by a, an invisible force because that's exactly what it is. Because the spirit of Christ will be working through them and impacting your life when the phone call comes. So we're wrapping a series of messages today, and the series has been called The We Factor, and it's all about living in community. And we believe that large swaths of our society and in the church is aching for community. We hear about this all the time. I hear about it pretty much every day. Heard about it again yesterday. Swaths of people and individuals just aching for community not sure which way to turn. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing, and, and the book of Ecclesiastes is a book we call wisdom literature. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, I've sampled everything there is to sample in life. I have unlimited resources, and I've sampled everything that the world has to offer many of them good things, but what I found in every case is that they have not given me purpose in life. And now he's reflected back on his life and all of the things he's tried to do, and he is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit pieces of wisdom from God that he has come to learn in a way that's changed his life. And he speaks at one point in his letter as he's writing in Ecclesiastes, where he contrasts the strength of people who live in relationship and live in community with the fragility and vulnerability of living largely in isolation. And so if you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to ask you to swipe with me or turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, which is found basically in the middle of your Bible. You'll open it up, you'll probably come to Psalms, go a little bit to the right, past Proverbs. If you come to Isaiah, Jeremiah, you've gone a little too far. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. And we're going to hear this wisdom literature from God to us as Solomon is writing. And he says this, 
Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. See, he's observed this, that when you work with someone else, there's often some healthy competition that spurs the other one on. There's the ability to say, I don't understand how to do this. Do you know how to approach this? Let's work together on this. Let's help each other. Let's make what we're doing even better so that we can do it together and succeed. And so Solomon says, I've observed this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls down and has no one to help him up. Pity the man who falls down, but has no one to help him up. Two people can get the job done much more effectively often. If you've ever tried to put drywall up, you know what I'm talking about. You try to put 12-foot sheets up by yourself and hold it in place, it's tough to do. But when there's two of you, you help each other, and one can hold it and the other can screw it in place. I was talking to someone just before the service, and he said years ago he fell off a ladder and broke his elbow. And this is an illustration of this passage. If one falls down... Pity the person if they're there by themselves. And if Mike had been there by himself, it would not have been good as he was in excruciating pain and someone was able to help him. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. You can stand back to back if you have to fight and defend one another. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And so Solomon makes these godly observations that God has inspired him to write about life. And of course, what God says through the biblical writers is confirmed as we do life and is confirmed by research later and research today. And so I was doing some reading by a guy named Robert Putnam who's not a follower of Christ, And he writes this book called Bowling Alone, and he confirms the kinds of things that God said long ago. The premise of his book is this. He's observed that in our society, people aren't really joining things nearly as much anymore. They don't join that bowling league or that golf league, and they typically are going about life alone, and thus the title of his book, Bowling Alone. And he was, he, he's a researcher, and so he began to write about this stuff and do studies on this and, and consider studies. Here's a couple of the things he said. People who are relationally isolated are more likely to experience colds, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, depression, and premature death of all sorts. Then he cites a dozen different studies that show this. People who are socially disconnected are between two and five times more likely to die from all causes compared with match individuals who have close ties. And so this guy has recognized what God has already said. God's plan is for nobody to be alone. And this is, of course, biblically illustrated all through the scriptures, through the life of Christ. He brought a team around him of more than 100 and a group of 70 and a group of 12 and a group of three. 
God's plan is for nobody to be alone. God's plan is for everyone to be known and loved and cared for. And his plan for this is called the church. There is no plan biblically. In fact, someone has said, and this is absolutely true if you study history, there's never been anything like the church when it's functioning like God calls it to be. When it's functioning like God calls it to be, despite our many, many faults. When it's functioning like God calls it to be, there's never been anything like it. In Acts chapter 2, the classic passage on this, which I won't read to you now, but you could read verses 42 to 47. And in it, as the early church launches, we're told that people in this new community, people who had surrendered their life to Christ, people who had realized that my sins can only be forgiven based on what Christ did for me. There's nothing I can do to be forgiven, nothing I can do to earn that forgiveness. I have to simply receive it based on what Christ did, who've received this forgiveness and surrendered their life to him. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves. And it's a very strong Greek word in Koine Greek. It says they devoted themselves to community. They learned together as they sat at the apostles' feet, as the apostles told them and taught them about Jesus. And they didn't just fill their heads with information about Jesus. They went out and and being able to spout uh, proper theological statements, they took what they'd learned and they put it into practice. And they took off their masks and they got real with one another and they realized that we all wear masks when we won't reveal our true self. And they fellowshiped, which means so much more. It might begin with a cup of coffee and very superficial talk, but the word in in scripture that is translated fellowship means so much more than that. It means literally, literally to share in and participate in the life of the person in another person's life. And so they fellowshiped together and they prayed together and they suffered together and they shared with each other as they had need in quite extraordinary ways. And it says they actually did this on a daily basis. They met at the temple and in homes and they cared for one another. See, all through scripture, opening chapters even, God does not like aloneness. He created us. He knows what we need. God loves family. God loves inclusion. Now, by the way, let me just say again, as human beings, we occasionally mess it up really bad. But the church still actually works. Again, Robert Putnam, who's not a follower of Christ, in his book, And he's studying the American church, but it has a lot of overtones um, here in Canada as well. As he studies society, he makes this observation about the church, and he has a graph in his book. And in the graph, it says this, there's a correlation between church attendance and happiness. He said, people who don't, generally speaking, people who do not attend church at all are significantly unhappier on the whole than people who do. He said people who attend 20 times a year are at least average or above happy, generally speaking. And people who attend regularly almost every week are the happiest people in society. 
And so he's recognized, even though he doesn't, he's not a follower of Christ, he's recognized that people who come together with the people of God, who are worshiping and are recognizing that God is who he is, he is the creator, and that they are the created, and that they are acknowledging this, that they're praying, that they're learning together, that they're actually putting the stuff they're learning into practice leads to greater joy in life. Now, beyond that, sometimes people just come to church for a long time, but no one really knows them. And there might be reasons for that if that's you that are beyond your control. It might be because of choices you make, like you come late and you leave early. Choices you make. And you might be in sort of that chronic visitor category, relationally isolated. If you want to experience the power of community, don't just attend. Get into a group. Get into a small group. Get into, we have triads of people. We have Zoom prayer groups. We have if tables. Come and serve. There's opportunities like we heard about earlier to serve at the soup kitchen. You'll be part of a team that serves together. Uh, Pastor Aaron said a couple weeks ago, we need small group, more small group leaders for the fall as we launch new groups and relaunch some of them that have kind of been hibernating a bit during COVID. Come to a place where you can experience mutual knowing, serving, and loving. And there is something very powerful about it. You see, Putnam has understood that community doesn't just keep us alive physically, it enables us to cope emotionally. And scripture tells us it's a primary way that we grow spiritually. The writer to the Hebrews, this is a very well-known passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read a couple of verses for, to you from 24 and 25. The writer to the Hebrews recognizes this as well. He says this, Let us consider, so in other words, let's think about this. Let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We have a role to encourage others. It's not a self-centered approach. How we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day, he's speaking about when Christ will return, as we see the day approaching. What's the bottom line of what I'm trying to say here today? The time to build community and friendship, and connection, and spiritual bonds is now. Because if you wait for the phone call to come, it's likely going to be too late. Not impossible, but it's just a lot harder. I've talked to you about this before, but it's been so important in my life. I've had groups of people, and I'll talk to you about one of them right now, that have just built into my life. No way I would have made it as a pastor without some of these people. But one in particular I'll talk to you about is Bob. Bob Keith is the pastor up in Coal Lake. And he and I talk probably every week. 
And he's on sabbatical right now, and he's over in Thailand doing some service over there. He called me this week on Facebook Messenger, so it doesn't cost anything. And we talked. And he is a guy that I can be direct with. There's only one other person in the world that I can be as direct and honest and upright with, and that's Debbie. But I can be more direct with that guy than anyone else apart from the one that I've been married to for 37 years. And we can ask each other difficult questions. And let me tell you something. That stuff doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen by accident. In the case of Bob, it's been 20 years of investing in the relationship. Of once in a while, I drive, I drive up to Coal Lake. That's a long drive. Or he's driven down here. Or we talk on the phone. Or when we do professional development, we plan to do it together and we've gone together. Or we've done things together. And we've laughed together, we've eaten together, we've traveled together, we've studied together, we've cried together, we've prayed for each other's kids together, we've invested in each other's kids. And we have a bond and a sense of community that uh, if the phone call came, if another phone call, let me put it that way, came for me later today, he'd be one that I would call. And if he has the phone call, he'll call me. The time to build community is now. And I've been around the block a few times. And I have seen this way too many times in my life. That when the storm comes, when everything falls apart, people who live isolated lives, what typically happens is they find it way too awkward to ask for help. Or they don't know who to call. Or when the phone call comes, they don't have the energy at that point to do the work required. And they become, as a result of that phone call, even more isolated and even more alone. And so what they go through gets magnified often exponentially. And it's very difficult to navigate it. The time to build community starts before the phone call comes. Now you're probably sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, well, Dixon, I'm not in crisis right now. And you're probably not, and I hope you're not. You might be feeling pretty good about things right now. In fact, you're saying, you know, Scott, I got life wired right now. That may be the case. But I will make you two promises. And the two promises are this. Number one, the phone call will come for you one day. Probably not today or next week or even next month, but one day the phone call will come where you'll realize, wow, I need people, I can't stand alone, and you have a bursting heart or a bleeding heart or a broken heart, and you need people who will allow the spirit of Jesus to flow through them to be there for you, support you, and care for you, and pray for you. The second promise is this. Even if you think that you don't need anybody, 
And some people live in that kind of illusion, I think. Oh, I don't need anybody. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, what the writer to the Hebrews is said is this. Even if you think you don't need anybody, somebody needs you. It says, let us consider who we might spur on. Somebody needs you. The Christian life is not meant, and I'm not saying you are selfish, but it's not meant to be selfish and self-absorbed. It's meant, to, it's meant for us to reach out and care for others in Jesus' name. Someone, this is the second promise, someone needs you. Someone needs your prayer. Someone needs your encouragement. Someone needs you to come along and say, well, you've got, you're facing this situation. Why don't we open God's word together and, and see what God has for you in this? Someone needs your perspective to say, you know, this is really what God says to you. You've heard these things about God, not true. This is really what he says to you about this. Someone needs your touch. And you know, I think it's time. Someone said to me the other day, and I agree, it's time to, re- to uh, move back into appropriate touch. Let me just illustrate it this way. When I go at the end of the service, I'll be at the door. People will be flowing by me. And some people will shake my hand. And some people will be bearing a mask and, and staying back. And it's not because they're trying to be standoffish. They've just, that's what's right for them right now. And maybe they have a health issue or whatever the case is. I was on the phone with someone yesterday who's been in church all their life, but they haven't been back to in-person church because their health is an issue. Totally get it. This opportunity to be grace-filled with each other. So some people will shake my hand. Some people will stand back and just kind of nod. Some people will come up and they'll hug me at the end of the service. Some people will just bump elbows with me. Some of the kids especially will fist bump with me. It's just an illustration that we need appropriate touch. And yet, we want to have a grace-filled approach with people as well. When we offer community, hope and support and caring, you're going to receive it back as well. You know, we live in a part of the world where there is so much financial affluence. We are incredibly blessed. And we see the gas prices going through the roof, and they really are but we're still incredibly blessed in Canada. We have educational and vocational opportunities that many parts of the world only dream of. And if you think I'm exaggerating, you need to get out and travel in the world a little bit. We are incredibly blessed in this country. Having said that, my second observation would be We are a country where it's kind of a wasteland of spiritual and relational poverty. Kind of interesting, isn't it? And there are lonely, scared, hurting people all around us. And Jesus says, come to my family. Come to my family. And when the phone call comes for you, will you be largely relationally isolated or living in community. We're going to celebrate communion together today. 
And communion illustrates many things, but one of the things it's illustrating is what we've been talking about this morning. But let me mention quickly some of the other things it illustrates. When we share communion together, we are recognizing the work of Christ. We're recognizing the fact that he died for us. There's a little wafer, a piece of bread, and there's some juice. These represent the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And it reminds us that historically, he went to the cross for us. It reminds us of the day when our life was changed personally. When we went, yeah, I need to be forgiven. And the blood of Christ was shed in my place. And when I have communion, I think about what he did historically, and I think about what he did in my life personally. The fact that I recognized that forgiveness is only and uniquely and exclusively available through him. And so I say thank you for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for me and that my sin is forgiven. And then secondly, I surrendered my life to you that you rose from the dead. That one day, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. And so there's this rich tapestry of theological truth that's not just floating around in the clouds somewhere. This is stuff that changed your life. And if you know Jesus as your savior, and the Lord of your life, we invite you, we encourage you to celebrate communion with us today. It illustrates all that, but it also illustrates what we're talking about today. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this in chapter 10, he says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. So that's all that stuff I've been talking about. We're saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross for me. Thank you that you didn't just die for this big mass of humanity, but you've changed my life. Thank you that you gave your life for me. Thank you. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So I can look around this room, and if I peer really hard, I maybe can see through the camera lens that's beaming me onto the online church right now. And I can see, uh, when I look around, I see women and I see men. I see people with blonde hair and pretend black hair and different eye colors and people that come from different parts of the world. I'm guessing that some of you vote for one political party and some of you vote for another. I'm guessing that a number of us here chuff, cheer for the Rough Riders and some just lose. <sighs> There's a variety of us here, right? And that is good. Uh, but communion communicates one more vital truth, and it's this. Despite our many differences, which is good, we share together the most important thing in the world.
that we agree about and we've been changed by the most important thing in the world, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, that salvation and relationship with God is available exclusively through him, that our life has been changed by him. And again, I say, if you know Jesus as personal Savior and Lord, you are welcome to share communion with us today. That we are one, verse 17 of chapter 10 says, as we participate in the imagery of the one loaf, we are one in Christ. Pretty cool. It's the most important thing. We need to acknowledge that, that we're in this together under Jesus. And so I want us to take a couple of minutes and I want you to just pray silently. And during that prayer time, as you're praying, just spend some time thanking God for sending Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for the church that despite its flaws is what you've put in place so that I can be in community, so that I can grow, mature in my relationship with Christ. Thank you for the we factor that we have in Jesus, the oneness. So I want you to take a couple of minutes to pray privately and silently, and then I'll just pray and say amen when we're done, and then we're going to share the communion elements together. So let's do that now.